Alrighty, well, a few weeks ago um, in our series on the life of Christ, we came to Matthew chapter 5, and we kind of stalled out in the Beatitudes. They were taking two, three weeks on the Beatitudes, and uh, haven't really got yet into the, uh, the rest of the heart of the message, and um, we're not going to today either. <laughs> we're going to, uh, once again, look past the Beatitudes, but kind of get an overview of, of Matthew chapter 5, chapter 6, and chapter 7. Um, how many of you here, and I need a show of hands here, I'm looking for a response. How many of you here have been, have ever read the Sermon of the Mount? Come on, simple question. Sermon of the Mount, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Raise your hand. Okay, now there's people back there. You're, you're telling me, Clay, that you've never read the Sermon of the Mount. You have, but you're just refusing to raise your hand. Oh, okay, <laughs> okay. Everybody, everybody, if you've read much of Scripture, if you've been involved in Christianity, if you've been involved in church for very long, you know, this is very familiar to us. The, you know, the, the, this great sermon of the Lord, the longest sermon of the Lord that was recorded. Um, but, but I got to tell you, we're all very familiar with it, but there's something that perplexes me about how we view the Sermon of the Mount today. I mean, even the title that we give it, you know, gives us a sense of warmth, doesn't it? The Sermon of the Mount. You know, you, you get this picture of Jesus sitting there on a picturesque mountainside. The people are all around him. And he calmly teaches them, and people are listening, and they're, they're shaking their heads, and they're smiling, they're nodding, and, you know, they're, amen, amen, as, as, as Jesus just begins to preach to them and, and to speak to them. And the, and, and, and the whole sense that we have of this sermon, it kind of makes me wonder if we've ever really read this sermon. This is the sermon in, in, in this ser, uh, chapter 5, 6, and 7. This is a sermon where it says in, in chapter 5, verse 48, it says, for Jesus is saying this, he says, therefore you are to be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. This is one of the declarations that Christ makes in this sermon. And you think the people sitting around there listening to it, it says, we need to be perfect just as God is perfect? In chapter 5, verses 17 through 19, he says this. He says, do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I did not come to abolish, but to fulfill. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth passes away, not the smallest letter or stroke shall pass from the law until all is accomplished. Whoever then annuls one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same shall be called the least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever keeps and teaches them, he shall be called great in the kingdom of heaven. I mean, he's putting this emphasis on us, you know, fulfilling the whole, you know, Mosaic law. And as the people are listening to this, I mean, the Mosaic law, what? I mean, nobody can keep that law. And then finally it comes in, in verse 20 and it says this. Christ is saying, again, he's speaking this to the people. He says, for I say to you, Unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. That's the sermon. That's the Sermon of the Mount. You know, on and on it goes. I mean, you think he is basically saying that the, your religious leaders, the Pharisees, and we know, you know, how legalistic they were and all their rituals. As a matter of fact, I, I, I looked up and we'll go ahead and put this on you. Of the Pharisees, they had 613 rules 
248 commands, 365 prohibitions, and 1,521 emendations. Over 2,700 do's and don'ts. And the people knew this. And here is Jesus saying, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. To avoid sexual temptation, there was a sect of the Pharisees. They called them the bleeding Pharisees or the bruised Pharisees because they would walk with their heads down all the time to not look upon a woman. And they constantly bumped into things, and that's how they got the name, the bleeding Pharisees. I mean, this is the culture that they're living in. This is the culture that Christ is delivering this sermon. Their yoke was heavy, the Pharisees, and it was oppressive. And Christ now tells them, you must surpass their righteousness. How do you think they took that? Ah, amen. You know, smiling, nice on the hillside, beautiful day out, you know, having, having Christ speak to them. I mean, Christ will go on and he will define murder as being angry with someone. Have you ever been angry before? By Christ's definition in this sermon, he says, you're a murderer. He will, he will define adultery as looking at a woman with physical desire. He'll say, if someone takes your shirt, give him your coat as well. Roman law at that time required the Jews who were oppressed under the Romans, it would require a Jew, any Jew at any time, a Roman citizen, could say, you, I want you to carry my groceries home for me. And that Jew would have to do that up to a mile. They could only carry it for a mile. And so whatever they were doing, whatever shopping, business they were doing, if, if they got you know, scripted to do this, they had to stop what they were doing, they had to carry their load you know, up to a mile, come all the way back, and they could continue in their day. So Christ tells them, he tells them, he says, if someone forces you to go a mile, he says, go with him too. This is the Sermon of the Mount. I mean, you know how humiliating it would be to you or I to be out there, you know, shopping and, and just having to, to stop what I'm doing, have, you know, no recourse whatsoever but to stop and to, to, to you know, carry a, another person's load. And then God, Jesus Christ is saying to him, I don't want you to go just one mile that they're asking. I want you to go two miles. You know, go that extra mile. Jesus made the law impossible for anyone to keep. And then he charges that we need to keep it. There was a study done at Texas A&M, a class. They were given the assignment of writing a review on the Sermon of the Mount. And here's a sample of some of the responses that were turned in concerning how they viewed this sermon. It said, the stuff the churches, the churches preach is extremely strict and allows for almost no fun without thinking it is a sin or not. Another said, I did not like the essay on the Sermon of the Mount. It was hard to read, and it made me feel like I had to be perfect, and no one is. Another one said, the things asked in this sermon are absurd to look at a woman as adultery. That is the most extreme, stupid, unhuman statement that I have ever heard. Now again, as a Christian, I look at these statements, and they're shocking to me. They're shockingly honest. But really, I believe that they are probably closer to the original audience's reaction 
than how we have portrayed, you know, this sermon as being. I mean, there is shock, there's disbelief at what Jesus is telling them, what it takes to come into the kingdom of heaven. I mean, who can honestly come close to living what Jesus is saying in the Sermon of the Mount? Now, theologians through history have tried to wiggle out of the standards that Christ is putting forth here. Um, Thomas Aquinas, he divided this sermon into precepts and counsel. In modern language, there are things that are requirements and then things that are simply suggestions. The Catholic Church built upon this and called, called them, divided them into mortal sin and venial sins. In other words, there's a two-term, you know, sin here. You know, some of the things Christ talked about are major sins and would contem condemn a, a soul to hell. And others are minor sins. They're disappointing, but they're forgivable. And that's how they tried to explain it away. Martin Luther explained it away by a dual citizenship for a Christian. He said the kingdom of Christ is on one hand, we're part of the kingdom of Christ, but, you know, while we're alive here, we're part of the kingdom of the world. So different standards, you know, for different places. That's how he tried to explain it away. And all of these things you're reading, there's so much more here. All of these ring with human wisdom. Maybe it makes common sense. But if you're really honest, doesn't it really appear that we're just trying to, to wiggle out of the hard teaching? This standard makes us feel uncomfortable unattainable and so somehow we have to massage it you know to make it to, to fit better into our you know world perspective our christian perspective here at no point in this whole sermon does christ indicate a two-tier system of right or wrong matter of fact he's he says the exact opposite you know nor does he say this applies to one time and not to another there aren't different standards for different times and for different peoples. That isn't what Jesus is putting forth here. So what is the overwhelming message of the Sermon of the Mount? What is this message that will be carried throughout all of the Gospels that Christ is going to, you know, I mean, this, why this sermon is recorded, kind of everything else springboards off of this sermon is you'll read that Christ says in the rest of the Gospels. Well, let me put it to you this way, and I'm, I'm taking this from Philip Yancey. Um, Philip Yancey, talks about a twofold system here that are twofold message not a system but there's a twofold message happening in in the sermon and in the gospels number one you have the absolute ideals and secondly you have absolute grace and i want to talk about those for just a second here. let's talk about absolute ideals for just a moment here no matter what the subject was it was that jesus spoke no matter what the subject was that Jesus spoke upon, he never lowered God's ideals. You ever notice that? I mean, he has been in heaven. He knows God the Father. You know, he is, he is deity himself. He is God. And he never, ever lowered the standards, no matter what he was talking about, whether it was money or morals or attributes or marriage or prayer or, or you know, our relationship with our enemies. You, you never see for the crowd that he's talking to you know, they may take it uncomfortably, so you never see him, you know, massaging this down, watering this down. He never lowered the standards. But once again, this isn't a blueprint for human behavior that we might think it is. Christ did not give us these words as some sort of standard that we all must meet 
if we're to be accepted by God the Father. Rather, we need to look at this sermon. Christ is telling us what God is like. God is telling us the standards of God. You know, God the Father, who we are striving to be like, that we are wanting to become more Christ-like day in and day out. You know, he is going to say how many times you have heard, but now I tell you. He says that over and over in the sermon. He is telling them, telling us what God is like. The character of God is the standard of this message. I mean, why should we love our enemies? Because God the Father causes the Son to rise on evil as well as good. You know, why should we be perfect? Because God the Father is perfect. Why store up treasures in heaven? Because the Father lives there and lavishes on us one day, you know, and rewards us for the life we live down here. You know, why, why live without worry or fear? Because the same God who clothes the lilies of the field has promised he's going to take care of you. This sermon is about God, about who God is. And forget about the Pharisees, forget about your pastors, forget about all these religious standards that you have out there. He reveals to them God the Father. This is what God is like. And we should never stop striving to be like the Father. And so we may not reach these standards, but this is, where we're, this is what we want to be like. This is who we want to be like. And so as we have questions about our life and things that we do and we don't do and choices that we have to make, I mean, we're just to think about our Father, our Father in heaven, and to be, take on his likeness and what that means and make our decisions accordingly. I mean, if you leave this sermon to itself, it, it does nothing more than drive home our inadequacies. That's all this sermon does is you read it and you think, it, it shows me how short I fall of God. So enter... The second purpose of the message is absolute grace. The word is charish. It means acceptable. You know, you found favor or joy or, or a person's pleasures upon you. They give you their grace. We know Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9. says, For by grace have you been saved through faith, and that not of yourself. It is a gift of God, not a, not a result of work, so that no one can boast. That's how we're saved, through grace. Not about us. It's a gift God has given us. Not, a re, not as a result of my moral standards that I've been able to live or not live. You know, not a result of works. Not about what I've done. Not about what I've given. So that I can't boast. This is all about God. Grace is what God gives us. When we admit to ourselves that we are sinful before him, we are empty before him, we repent, and we ask his forgiveness. I get God's favor when I do that in my heart. I don't deserve it. I never earned it. But it is something that Christ says God the Father will give us. And quite honestly, you know, you really can't have one without the other. If you look at this and you look at your faith as being about absolute ideals, you know, without having absolute grace, if you look, just talk about the absolute ideals, that breeds legalism. And that legalism either leaves us beaten and battered over our sinfulness because no one, no one can live up to this standard, or it breeds a self-righteousness because I may not be perfect, but I'm better than you. 
And, and that's not the point of this at all. If you just look at absolute grace without having absolute ideals or moral standards, if you just talk, oh, just God is grace, you know, that leaves us with a superficial relationship with God. You know, that sin doesn't matter. We just presume upon God because God's just going to forgive us and I can and do whatever I want. But if you take these two together, they are the heart and soul, the foundation of my relationship with God. I suddenly realize my shortcomings. I realize my sinfulness. I realize my struggles. But through all of those things, God accepts me not because of how well I am doing or not doing, but he accepts me because of Christ's righteousness. If I'm a Christian, I will fall, and I will fall all of my life, but I will not stop getting up because I know about God's grace, his absolute grace. Romans chapter 5, verse 20. It says, The law came in so that the transgressions would increase. But where sin increases, graces abound all the more. This is an important verse, folks, for us. The law came in knowing the truth. The more I know about God, the more I know about his standard and who he is and his perfection and his holiness. I just seem worse and worse off. I feel more and more sinful. So sin increases the more I know about God and about his character. That's what the sermon has given us. But he said grace abounded in the midst of that all the more. God's favor, God's forgiveness of us, God's desire to, to restore us to the way that he wants us to be created. Tremendously important verse. As we, even as Christians now, as we, we deal with our sin. A Paul, remember Paul, I mean, here's Paul, whew, you know, way up on the pedestal, Paul. Even Paul, he writes at a, of a time in Romans about this painful struggle that he has to do what is right, to live right before God. And you can feel his anguish over knowing God's ideal and striving to please God. He says in chapter 7 of Romans, verse 18 and 19, he says, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for the willing is present in me, but the doing of the good is not. For the good that I want, I do not do, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. This is Paul. I mean, he, he is being open and honest about the struggle that we all have with sin. He'll go on and in verse 24, he said, Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? In other words, this human state that we're in, this flesh that we are in right now, I mean, very literally, it is a body of death because there is no way I can attain to the standard of God, of who God is. And he cries out then in verse 25, Thanks be to God, he answers his own question. Who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Jesus is the answer. But we got to know that we're sick. We got to know that we have a problem. We have to understand that we fall short before we understand that we need a Savior. We need someone to come into our life and to do something for us that you and I cannot do for ourselves. We cannot be righteous. 
you know, I, you can maybe be a little bit above everyone else, but to fall short of the glory of God is to fall short. Short is short. It doesn't matter if it's 10 miles or two miles. To fall short is to fall short. And then he starts the next chapter in Romans 8, 1. He says, therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you are a Christian today, let that sink in. Let that sink in as we understand that we still sin. And I understand that I still fall, I still have thoughts, I still have actions, I ha still have this, this nat sin nature within me that, that often causes me to do things that break, you know, this, this Sermon of the Mount. But for me as a Christian, not because of my own righteousness, but because of Jesus Christ our Lord, there is now no condemnation for me. No condemnation for you if you are in Christ Jesus. If you, you are one of his children. If you've asked him to forgive your sins. If you have repented, poured your life out to him. He has come in, come in and he has forgiven you. And that is our relationship with Jesus Christ. I mean, in the Beatitudes, he talks about us being poor in spirit, realizing the poverty that we have, you know, of our righteousness. He tells us to mourn over our sin. He tells us to then hunger for righteousness, a, a purity of heart, but realizing that our righteousness always falls short. But through Christ, God accepts us. He accepts me. He loves me. He loves you. He gives you grace. He gives you mercy. He gives you something that... You and I don't deserve. And once you're a child of his, he always gives those to you. You know, he'll put that standard up because he wants us to know what you should be striving for. He wants us to know how we pick ourselves back up and, and get back on that path. You know, he wants us to know, but he is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And now I live as a Christian. You know, I strive to live pleasing to God. I want to please God not so he'll accept me. But I want to please God because he has accepted me already. Because of what he has done. The love of, for Christ constrains me to, to read this sermon and, and to strive to be like my father. To emulate Christ. That love of Christ constrains me. There's a quote from Philip Yancey I want to kind of get towards a conclusion here with. He says, Jesus did not proclaim the Sermon of the Mount so that we would furrow our brows in despair over our failures to achieve perfection. He gave it to impart to us God's ideals towards which we could ne should never stop striving, but also to show that none of us will ever reach that ideal. The Sermon of the Mount forces us to recognize the great distance between God and us. And any attempt to reduce that distance by somehow moderating or watering down its demands misses its points altogether. The worst tragedy would be to turn the Sermon of the Mount into another form of legalism. It should rather put an end to all legalism. Legalism like the Pharisees will always fail not because it is too strict, because it is not strict enough. Thunderously, inarguably, 
The Sermon of the Mount proves that before God, we all stand on level ground. We are murderers, tempers throwers, adulterers and lusters, thieves and coveters. We are all desperate. And that is in fact the only state appropriate to a human being who wants to know God. Having fallen from absolute ideals, we have nowhere to land but in the safety net of absolute grace. You know, I want you to think about that today. I want you to think about that in the context of your own life and your own relationship or, or lack of relationship with Christ. You know, if you are a Christian here today, and I got to say, it, it's easy to have this truth forgotten in our lives. You know, we get saved, we know we're a Christian, and but then our, our sins mount up, our disappointments with you know, God we feel he has with us that we have with ourselves. You know, or, or, or maybe we just kind of push this whole thing to a side. God's grace in the midst of who we are and with all of our failures and sin, we just push that message aside and we just, you know, it's easy for us to wallow in our failures and wallow in our disappointments. So we serve every day, we strive, we sacrifice because, you know, we, we feel that that's important. Maybe God will accept me. But truly, we are supposed to serve, we are supposed to strive, we are supposed to sacrifice because God has already accepted us through his son, Jesus Christ. Short is short, and we all fall short. But as a Christian, we get back up. We continue on because of God's great favor towards us. And no matter where you are, no matter what you have done as a Christian, it doesn't matter if we are truly God's children. We can start over. We can start again. We can repent. We can turn to God. We can ask his forgiveness. Receive God's grace. And then once again, you know, because of our love for him, trying to become like the Father. Maybe there is someone here who's not standing the grace of Christ. You know, whenever you've gone to church, whenever you've considered religion, it seemed like nothing more than a bunch of do's and don'ts, that that's kind of what you think the church is. You know, that's what Christians are all about, their do's and don'ts. You know, and, and the things that we talk about, we appear to be hypocrites in because ultimately we can't live them you know, up to the standard of God. If you've got those thoughts today, Christ wants you to abandon trying to please God by our actions and, and put your life in, in, in Christ's grace. Jesus is God in the flesh. He lived perfect. He lived holy. He lived sinless, and he paid a price for your sin. He paid a price for my sin. He is God in the flesh. But you must receive that gift that he is offering you today of absolute grace in your life. If you don't, you will wallow in these absolute ideals of failure, of falling short of the glory of God. And it's enough, not enough. We discussed this in our men's ABF. It's not enough just to be favorably disposed towards Christianity. That, well, Christianity makes the most sense to me over all those things that are out there. That doesn't make a person a Christian. 
For you to become a Christian, it's all about you and your relationship with Jesus Christ. Have you accepted his death on the cross for the forgiveness of your sins? This upcoming week, we're going to be celebrating the resurrection, his victory, his being the first fruits, guaranteeing for a Christian, his children, what is to come, that we will have a resurrection, that we will have an eternity in heaven. And God wants you to have that. Not because of what you do or don't do, but because you have abandoned your efforts and you've returned to Jesus Christ. And right now, today, that can be the day that you do that. We're going to pray in a moment. You can open up your heart to that message. You know, it's not about the words you say or follow along with me what I say, but it's, it's what's truly happening in your heart before God. If you're ready to call out, to cry out to him, he wants to save you. Today can be your day of salvation. So, Father, I ask you to search our hearts, Lord. Man, I, I see these truths, and I'm overwhelmed at how it can be received from us for a Christian. I'm hoping that, Lord, anyone out there who, who feels that they have been beaten and battered by the world, people pointing fingers at them, that they've been pointing fingers at themselves because of their actions or their thoughts. That, Father, if they know you as Savior, Lord, that, that they, you, they, as Paul said, would find that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That, yes, we repent. Yes, it's you know, disappointing to the Father, but he wants to restore us. And he wants to appoint us anew to you. And Lord, I pray right now for anyone here who has any question, whether if they died today, whether they'd stand in your presence because of the grace of Jesus Christ, having been received. If anyone has a question of that, God, I pray that they will open their heart right now to you. If they still have questions, that they will seek somebody out to get some answers. Father, this is, this is too important to be pushed aside, to be left aside for Satan to, to steal this seed that's been planted here today. And so I pray that you will work in any, anyone who is searching out there right now. And they might make that decision for you. Thank you, Father. In thy son's name we pray. Amen.